Welcome. Glad you're here. Uh, my name is Alan, and uh, welcome to part two of uh, the whole shebang. We are doing a series throughout the whole year, and we're calling it the whole shebang. If if you're new, we got started with it last week, and the shebang concept is that the word shebang means the entirety of something, and it also means a party. And so we're going to have a party while we look at the entirety of God's grand epic story. Last week we launched into the book of Job. And the reason we went into the book of Job is that there are three main characters that are introduced in this book. And uh, the overall story of the whole shebang is the story of a loving father, God the Father, who passionately pursues a relationship, a restored relationship with us, with his people. So those are two characters. And then the third character is the antagonist, the uh, enemy, the bad guy, if you will, the Satan that is so clearly introduced in the book of Job. And so we have three characters. We have two stages that we looked at last week that there is a supernatural stage where God and the angels and the supernatural interact. They see what happens in their on their stage as well as what happens on the other stage. The other stage is the natural stage. It's the world that we live in, where we interact and we we have access to this stage. We don't know all that's happening on, on the supernatural stage. There's three characters, two stages and one Awesome God. Three, two, one, go. So we're launching into the whole shebang today. We are looking at the book you thought I was going to look at last week, the book of Genesis. We're going to look at the first few chapters and we're going to look at the question, what went wrong? So I invite you, if you would, bow your heads with me as we launch into this. God, we are thankful for your story. Thankful for those who have gathered here today. And um, God, we... We worship you as the storyteller. It is so moving to read a book or hear a story or watch a movie. We are so moved by stories. And so, God, would you come as the storyteller this morning and move us, transform us in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Well, we're launching into Genesis chapter 1. If you brought your Bibles, please open up there. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Again, we do invite you to bring your Bibles and, uh, and your little binders, your whole shebang binders. Last week, as a part of this celebration, I uh, just saw John Kane, who was sitting in this area. And I said, hey, John, would you come up with a little, maybe you could come up with a jingle that would help us to remember to bring our Bibles and bring our binders. And unfortunately, he did. So uh, here it is. Here's the jingle. Bring your Bible, bring your binder. This is your short reminder. Bring your Bible, bring your binder. This is your short reminder. If that doesn't inspire you, I don't know what will. And, and here's the threat. If you don't bring your Bible and your binder, we're going to keep on playing that. That's the threat. Now, I, I, what I understood as I was coming in is that we've actually run out of binders, which is uh, a great problem. That means, uh, it means you're here. And we are thrilled that you're here. What's really thrilling to me is that people seem to really care about the whole shebang. People, you, people really seem to be excited about learning God's story. And I'm truly honored to be uh, doing this with you. So that's awesome. But we did run out of binders. We'll get them as soon as we can. They are in order. We'll see what happens. Uh, just kind of a, a gentle little... Uh, another little reminder is if you forget your binder, don't grab a new one every Sunday, okay? If you're just a kind of a, just instead of grabbing one, just take the one from the person next to you when you sit down. Don't take one from the lobby. 
Okay, so, uh, but you can take your sheet. We're going to give a sheet out every week, and you can take your sheets, whether you have a binder or not, whether we're out of stock on binders or whatever. Sheets will always be available in that little basket on, on the way in, and uh, you can fill that out and put it in your binder at another time. Sound great? Okay, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, begins with a verse that many of us are quite familiar with. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is uh, this is just an amazing way to start the story, to start uh, the scripture that God has given us. Many of you, if you've gone to school, you have heard of the Big Bang Theory. This is the Big Shebang Theory, that God created the heavens and the earth. What I want to do here for the next few moments is look at this creation poem that God has given us here in the first chapter of Genesis. And, uh, and the way I want to do that is do it in a family feud sort of way uh, where I will be Richard Dawson uh, without the kissing. So don't worry. No worries. I'm not, no kissing involved. But uh, if we could put up our, our family feud uh, chart here. And what we're going to do is uh, invite you to look at the uh, Bible that's in front of you and help figure out what happens on the first day. What happens behind door number one? What does God create on the first day? Light creates the day and the night. Survey says, ding, very nice, okay. Uh, anybody who wants to join me on the ding, you're welcome too. Um, you can be a dinger here this morning. So number two, what did God create on the second day? I heard the sky and the waters, and he separated the waters. Good, survey says, Oh, thanks. Thanks for thanks for your uh, uh, oddness. Uh, it's wonderful. Uh, so, number three, what did God create on the third day? Oh, wow, we got enthusiasm over here. Okay, we've got we've got the land and the trees and the uh, plants. Right? Survey says, ding. Look at that. You got it right again. Day number four. What did God create on day number four? Sun, moon, and stars. Survey says, ding, stars, sun, and moon. Different order, same people. Okay. Uh, fifth day, what did God create? Fish and the birds. Survey says, ding. Sixth day, what did God create? Animals and what else? There's kind of a, a second part to the sixth day. The people, the people. Number six, survey says, Animals, humans, and on the seventh day, what did God do? He rested. Seventh day, boom. And according to Kiss, what happened on the eighth day? God created, not hockey. I should have said hockey. But no, God created rock and roll. Okay. God created hockey. Awesome. Awesome. He is a good God. Uh, So what we see here, take away the eighth one, this is the poem kind of laid out in a structural form. Can you see a pattern in the one through three, uh, in the first through third, and the fourth through sixth days as, as I line them up with each other? Do you see a pattern in there at all? Yeah, that's right. That's right. The setting, the left column, days one through three, were the settings, and four through six are the elements that were in those settings and so here god creates the day and night and then on the fourth day he puts the stars the sun and the moon second day he creates the sky and separates the water and he puts in those settings the birds and the fish 
Third day, he creates the land, the plants, and the trees, and then he puts animals and humans in there. The, the point I just want to make with that is that, yes, it's a beautiful poem, but God made an orderly creation. God made an intentional, orderly creation. There is something magnificently ordered and balanced and beautiful about the creation that God has given us about what we get to explore here in the first chapter. When you think about the distance that our planet is from the sun as, as it goes around, that distance is the exact distance that it needs to be any closer. We'd burn up any further and we would freeze. Now, for those of us here in this city, there are times in the summer where we think God cut it a little close on the thing. <laughs> just maybe just nudged it just a little bit that way. But, but, but the, the temperature range that humanity, that animals can handle is so small in the grand scheme of temperatures that are in our universe. And this is the temperature range that God has set up for us. This balance of oxygen and carbon dioxide that flows in and out of us and plants to create this balance. It's amazing, this orderly creation that God has given us. Um, Those of you who are in medicine or in fields of physiology, the journey of studying the human body must lead one to be in awe of a designer, of a creator, of an orderly... I mean, you just look at the way the brain works, the way the eye works. I mean, you just... God, the way He designed humans, just made an incredible thing. I mean, look at this. How could there not be a designer, a creator? Now, I ought to be careful with it. I don't want to, like, damage your faith by making a comment like that. But, but trust me, there is an amazing God... And this God is an intentional, orderly designer. If you woke up in the morning and you eat alphabet soup and your family was before you and then you got, they, they got up and moved on before you and you got up to your bowl of alphabet uh, cereal, not soup, alphabet cereal, and you licked in the bowl and the letters were laid out, I-L-O-V-E-Y-O-U. The letters were just laid out right on top of the milk. Your first thought would not be, wow, what are the chances? Right? I mean, if it was designed like that, you, you wouldn't be thinking, what are, the, what are the chances? You'd be thinking, wow, there is something, someone behind this. There is a designer. And we're talking about, we're talking about letters of a, of a uh, 26-letter alphabet. Just, just look at one molecule. Now, some of you are more experts than I am uh, in this area. But, but look at the uh, collagen molecule, which is a a very complex helix of three strands uh, uh, that go to create a, a, a protein in the human body that keeps things attached. They keep tendons, and, and that's the way the body holds together in, in mammals. And, and this one molecule, I've read that the chances of it lining up with all the pieces that would create this one molecule would be like going to a slot machine that had 1,022 spinners. 1,022 spinners, all having 24 images on each of them, 24 different images, pull the trigger, and then it lines up a jackpot along the way. Chances are pretty slim that that's going to happen. There is an orderly design. When we we start to think that that we are created by chance, that we crawled out of of the primordial soup, that we are simply uh, apes with opposable thumbs... When we start to think that way, then it starts to cheapen life. And when we see life as cheap, then we see 
life as disposable. And it affects how we view other people, particularly people that we're not fond of, people that we're inconvenienced by. And this shapes how we view the elderly. It shapes how we view the uh, people of, of different races, people who have different kinds of backgrounds. This shapes how we view the unborn, how we view the handicapped. This kind of thinking that there is not a, a grand designer is what leads some to hurt other people, to kill other people. It's what leads groups to, to, to commit genocide on a whole other nation or race. God is an orderly designer. And when he was going through this, uh, this poem, this, these uh, seven days, call them literal or not, that's not, a, that's not something for, we're going to go after here today. But when he went after this, six out of those seven days, or all the days but one, and you can look it up uh, on your own as to which day he did not say this, but most of the days God created, and he saw that it was what? He saw that it was good. Good. Now, if I stood before my bride 12 years ago when we, get married, when we got married, and when I saw her for the first time, and she said, well, how do I look? What would you think would have happened if I said, good? <laughs> I probably wouldn't be happily married here this day uh, with you. I mean, good is a word that leaves room for improvement. Good is a word that, that, that is so not superlative that it does not say perfect. God did not create a perfect world. And, and because perfect means that there is no need for, need for improvement. It has arrived. It is complete. It is unchanging. It is static. It is fixed. Let me just tell you, my wife looked perfect on our wedding day. Let me just tell you another thing. She looked fabulous. So, so... There is this, God said, and it was good. Let me look at an example with you in the first chapter on day three, verse 10. Verse 10, chapter one, God called the dry ground land and the gathered waters he called seas and God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seeds in it according to their various kinds and it was so. God does not produce the vegetation. It says here, He made land and said, Let the land produce vegetation. And later on, He makes birds and says, Let the birds multiply. It's not God who makes everything finished and perfect. God sets things in motion so that we get to participate in the creative process. He says to animals, go forth and multiply. He says to humans, go forth and multiply. He gives specific directions in chapter 2, verse 15, to Adam. Chapter 2, verse 15, the Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. He didn't give him a weedless garden that was perfect and required none of his involvement. The world that God created is one that invites and requires our participation, our involvement. The whole shebang, the grand story that God has laid out is one that invites and involves our participation in it. This is so key to the story. If we miss this part, we lose the significance of our stories, of our lives, of your role in the whole shebang. 
on tab number six in your binder, tab number six is called the unwritten. That is a section of the whole shebang that we're going to look at in the fall. That is your role, your part in the grand story. How can we discover what your past and your giftings, how does that all fit into this amazing, beautiful story that God is telling? God has created a world and a story that, that invites your involvement in it. We're not just learning the story, we're part of it. Very important. So God creates here and he says that it was good. It was good. And at one point he says, it's not good. And this is right after the verse we just read in chapter 2, verse 18. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. A helper is really kind of a, it's one of the most difficult words, uh, in this, particularly in this section, to translate that a helper just seems so low. You know, helper hamburger, helper, put it in, mix it around, you know, whatever. How, helper, that's not really the most glamorous word to describe Eve. There is no hint, there's no way that we can read this and make any conclusion that Eve is less than in the design of creation. In, in fact, there, there, there's more evidence towards the other side that God and His creation ramped things up and that Eve is the crown of His creation. The piece de resistance, if you will. Ooh la la. And so, and so there, is this, there is this part of God that was missing, a significant part of God, of God that was missing, that, that uh, God is not male, that men and women are made in, in the image of God, and there was a part of God that was missing, a significant part, and that is the relational part of God. Now, forgive me if I'm being sexist or stereotypical in this, but it's pretty hard to disagree with the fact that men and women are different. Boys and girls are different. I, I, I mentioned this once before a couple of years ago, but we do Lego at our house and we have two boys and one girl. And our boys, they just, we didn't teach them to do this. They just play Lego a certain way. And that way is to build ships that destroy things. That's what they do. They build, they have torpedoes and they have bombs. And well, look what this one has, Dad. And then they, because it's Lego, you got heads that are popping off. And then, you know, missing limbs and, and all the kind of thing. That's just the way boys play. And the sound effects, tons of sound effects. We have a little girl. We didn't teach her to play differently. She gets to the same uh, Legos in the same room, in the same family. She has these two little Legos sitting on chairs at a table talking to one another. And they said, how are you today? Oh, um, that is a nice shirt you have on today. How are you? And it's just, it's just the way we've been designed. There's a radio talk show host who made the observation that there are different kinds of callers based on the different topics that are going on. That, that if the topic is a macro issue that is a kind of a distant macro issue like politics or finances, then the callers typically are named Joe and Bob and Sam. And But if the topic is a closer topic, it is a, is a micro issue, it is about relationships, it is about... Um, faithfulness, it's about children, it's about interacting with one another, then the callers and, and the ones who are interacting, they are named Sue and Betty and Fran or whatever the names may be. There, there is this, there's this part, there's this beautiful part of God that was 
missing without the beauty of Eve entering into the story. That God, yes, sir, that, that God is, this, this is a, we've probably all heard this before, but let's embrace it powerfully here this, this morning. God is a relational God. He is not interested in managing, in organizing, in manipulating, in fixing us. He's interested in a relationship with us. This is mind-boggling that the creator of the universe would, would be... He's not needy. He's not desperate. He's passionate about you. He really is. And this is so consistent throughout Scripture that we see this in the whole shebang. In the next section, it's called the exile. And that is about God saying, please, please make, make decisions to have a relationship with me. Please, please, I don't want to have to do this. Please do this. We'll see that so consistently in the story. We get into the New Testament. Jesus is asked, what is the greatest of of all the commandments? He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. God wants to have a relationship with you and then love others. And when we love others, we are pouring into that relationship with God. God does not want to fix you. He wants to have a relationship with you. A.W. Tozer says that God waits to be wanted Ah, it's just beautiful. God waits to be wanted, to be longed for by you. So we have this beautiful, ordered design, a a creation that we've been invited to be a part of. And what went wrong? Here we get into chapter 3, which is what is referred to often as the fall. Chapter 3, verse 1, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. As I mentioned last week, the third character in this story is the antagonist, the the serpent, the, the Satan. Whenever he shows up, his only task is to separate the pursuing God from the beloved us. That is his only task. Whenever he shows up, that's what he's doing every time. And he's crafty, as the writer says here. I want to take a look at the next few verses and I'm going to kind of do it choppy just to kind of show some of the tactics of of what the enemy does here. Just real quick. He said to the woman, I'm going to stop right there already, that the story of God saying to Adam and Eve, don't eat from the tree of knowledge. It happens in chapter 2. And that story, that mandate from God was given not to the woman, was given to Adam. The woman didn't exist at this point. So the serpent is waiting and going after the woman, not because she is weaker, but because the serpent knows that that the man probably didn't give her all the information that she needed to know. I think it's possible. I mean, that's not a... I think it's possible is what I'm saying. That, that At the very least, the serpent was trying to mess things up. And, go, and, and uh, go there. So he says, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? No, no. See, Satan's not lying yet. Did God really say this? No, that's not what God says. You can read that in chapter 2. Satan brings confusion. Just brings confusion into our story, into our journey, into our decisions. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat from 
uh, fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. God mentions nothing about touching it. So here are, there's this confusion of, oh, I'm not sure what God said. Did God say this? Did God say that? One of the trip-ups for many people with regard to having a genuine relationship with God is the assumption that God has said something that He hasn't. That when we land on God says blank without clear support from Scripture, we are on dangerous ground. And those, that, those words can be thrown out and used terribly with other folks. And, and it, it is breaking a commandment. That is using the Lord's name in vain. That means attaching His name to something He didn't say. So with stuff like, don't do that, don't smoke, don't chew, don't go with girls who do, whatever, the, whatever the, the religion wants to pour onto you, if it's in here, pay attention to it. If it's not, be careful attaching something to God that He didn't say. Here we go. Uh, and then Satan just bold-faced lies here in verse 4. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat... Of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. This is, this is just a lie. This is not what God said. God said, you will die. It's not going to work out for you. And, and the enemy just will do whatever he can to create doubt in our minds that our God really does love us that much, that our God really does want to have a genuine relationship with us. There's so many reasons that bounce around our heads and we often don't associate them with a serpent or with an enemy. Reasons that say, why would God be interested in me? Whatever those doubts are, whether we attribute them to an enemy or not, they are getting in the way of this whole shebang connection between you and your God. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some of it and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Keep a note there. Adam is right next to her. I mean, usually this story is understood that Eve is there doing all the problems and Adam is over somewhere, uh, you know, helping uh, animals, fixing their broken legs or, you know, because Adam is so wonderful. Adam is right there next to her. He's right there next to her, that wimpy little man. (laughs) Verse 7, Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig trees together and made coverings for themselves. And we've been covering ourselves ever since. Ever since then, we have not had the freedom to be who we naturally are. We, we put on masks. We, we are uh, living in the guilt and the shame of what we have done. We continue to cover ourselves up in so many different emotional ways. We so, have such a difficulty getting connected, getting closer with other people. This is what theologians refer to as depravity. It's the human condition. And when we talk about the human condition and who we are as, as we look at, at how it all began, a, a very significant question here is, are we naturally good or naturally not? Now, there's a part of us that's good. We're made in the image of God. And I've known some people who have had no interest in God, who have done some amazing things. Good, good, good people. There's, there is good in there. But, left to our own devices, we drift away from 
goodness. We drift towards selfishness, towards self-preservation, towards what's in it for me. That's the natural leaning. We naturally lean away from loving God and loving others. That's the natural drift of the human condition. We are predisposed to sin. And there's nothing we can do out of our own strength to stop it. We can't grit our teeth, flex our muscles strong enough to stop that natural movement. Fortunately, God had a plan from the very beginning. And this is beautiful. Some of you, you've known this for years. Maybe for some of you, this is new. Early, early on, God had a plan. Let's jump to uh, verse uh, 15 here in chapter 3. After this all goes down, God speaks to the serpent. Verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. Her offspring becomes a carpenter boy named Jesus Christ. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. That here we are in chapter 3 and God is saying there will be a time. Jesus wasn't an afterthought for God's whole shebang story. God knew the whole plan right here. There will be a time where I will send the offspring of Eve to crush you underneath his feet. And that's the end of the whole shebang. The whole story is laid out right here. And then jump to verse 21. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. You cannot make a garment of skin without killing an animal, without death, without blood. It's the first sin in the, in the, in the whole shebang story. It's the first prophecy in the whole shebang story. And it is the first death in the whole shebang story. And it is all connected that that here God says here in chapter 3 that it is the shed blood that will cover the sins of humanity. That the fellowship with God will be restored as the result of a sacrifice. The story is laid out and we see the story played out in the person of Jesus Christ. The whole shebang is set in an orderly way, in a beautiful, godly way, is set in motion. So here we stand, millennia after this. What went wrong? Adam and Eve chose poorly. The whole thing has to have a choice. We talked about this last week. Genuine love requires a choice. We have to be able to make the, cho- the choice to love God, otherwise it's not real. And that's a, that's a difficult thing. How could God allow that to happen? How could God allow that to happen to the people that we love? How could God allow that to happen to Job? Very legitimate questions. But the whole shebang requires our choice. And we choose either the truth of God or the lie of the enemy. And we make that choice every day. We either choose the truth of God and say, I will, be, I will remain committed in my marriage whether I feel like it or not. This is the person I'm in covenant with. I'm going to learn about myself and about my relationship with God by, by holding steady here. Or we are going to believe the the lie of the enemy that says, I'll be better off without this person. 
We are either going to embrace the truth of God that says that what we take into our mind, what we take into our body, the things that we fill our time with, the things that we use and consume, those things are destructive to us or we're going to believe the lie of the enemy that says, ah, it's just once. Oh, just you, you, you need to have some kind of relief or break. Just go for it. Just don't tell anybody. We either believe the truth of God that we are a significant player in the story. We have a role to play in the whole shebang. Or we believe the lie of the enemy that says you are nothing. Who do you think you are based on your decisions, based on your history? Who do you think you are to think that you can have a significant role? You're a loser. You're nothing. That's the lie of the enemy. We get to choose. God waits to be wanted He waits to be chosen. Today, this week, let's choose life over death. Let's choose the truth of God. Not religion and all the morality that's connected to the truth of a loving God that wants to have a relationship with you. Let's choose that over the confusion of the enemy. Let's pray. God, every one of us here sits in this room with a tree of knowledge that sits before us, with a decision, with, with something that's, that is a significant part of our lives, and we don't know which way to go. Father, there is a truth that is connected to that, that is connected to your love for us, to your love for each one of us, God. And I pray that your truth would would laser beam into our hearts, into our minds right now, that we would have the courage and the confidence to make the right decision. The decision that we can't make on our own, but the decision that we can make through the power of you working in our lives. And Father, I pray that that the confusion and the lies that are on the other side of of this decision, of this tree of knowledge that's in our lives, God, that that it would be shut out, that that it would be crushed under the heel of your son, Jesus Christ. Would you give us the strength, the courage, and the grace to embrace the truth, Father? We are thankful that you laid out a plan from the very beginning that this plan would be fulfilled in the person of your son, Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.